Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity as a body of believers to meet together in the freedom that this nation provides for us. We continue to pray for this nation. We pray for our president. We pray for his cabinet advisors. We pray for military leadership. We pray for the congressional leadership. We pray that you would uh, continue to protect this nation at this time when, when we hear of threats and rumors of threats and we hear of uh, terrorist attacks and the possibility of terrorist attacks and all of the uh, horrendous things that could take place. We know that our only security, our only hope, our only protection is you. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation because it is a support for Israel and because we continue to send out missionaries and we continue to proclaim the gospel. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, continue to guide and direct our leaders, give them strength, give them help, give them objectivity of thought that they might make wise decisions. And, Father, we pray that you would confound and confuse our enemies, that they might make dis- mistakes and be discovered before they create the horrible damage that they seek to create. Father, we pray for us now that we would realize that as believers we are a crucial element in the nation, because as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And we pray that you would continue to help us to understand your word, to see how to apply it, to challenge us with your word, to to make it a vital part of our thinking, that we may see how you have designed all things together, that we may better understand this fantastic spiritual life that you have given us. And we pray that you would help us to see the application of these principles we study today in our own life. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are going to get into a passage, a section, or a verse, let's say, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that is often misinterpreted, but even more often misapplied. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. As I have been uh, watching this verse approach and It's been interesting, fascinating for me to see how God the Holy Spirit often pulls things together. One of the things that I do that, that, uh, in our our teaching is to have three different subjects. Sunday morning is 1 Corinthians, the first hour, 1 John, the second hour, Daniel on Wednesday night. It often amazes me how the study in one complements the study in another. And as a pastor, this is important because it helps me to flesh out 
many of the doctrines to develop things a little more fully and to see how things correlate with one another. It's also important, I think, for the congregation because not everybody's at the same place in their spiritual life, and so it gives you an opportunity to be hit with different doctrines at different times. But today is one of those interesting scenarios where what we're teaching first hour perfectly complements what we're teaching second hour. In fact, for those who just get the tapes, in order to really appreciate some of the things we're going to be studying over the next two or three Sundays in both uh, both hours on Sunday morning, uh, the tapes need to be probably need to be listened to uh, alongside of one another because they correlate in many different ways. One of the things that I have noticed as I've gone through this is is a sort of opened up for me. I hate using the word breakthrough, but it come to a better understanding of certain doctrines in the Scripture. We all have learned and studied the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and when it comes to our study in 1 John, the second hour, we have spent quite a bit of time studying the concepts of abiding in Christ and, and what that means. But the next question we need to ask, and we need to push ourselves into the next level of understanding, is how do these two doctrines relate to one another? What is the relationship of the indwelling of the, not only the Holy Spirit, but also the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ? What, how do those relate to the abiding concepts? And furthermore, as we look at these two doctrines, in order to really understand what's going on and what they mean for the spiritual life today, we have to spend some time doing some Old Testament analysis to make sure we understand what the frame of reference is in these things. So to begin with, we need to just have a little review, bring ourselves, our minds back to uh, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember, Paul is dealing in these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians with the problem of cliques and personality cults that are developing in the Corinthian congregation because of the fact that they, their frame of reference in the pa- their pagan uh, Greek culture is to uh, put their focus on leaders of thought groups, leaders of schools. The, the Stoics did it, with, and uh, the Epicureans did it, and you have the earlier you had the followers of Aristotle and Plato, and they, they, they identified themselves with certain key teachers or leaders. They brought that frame of reference with them into the church, and they're still operating on that. As a result, they're experiencing divisions. There's jealousy in the congregation. There's antagonism. There's there's an inordinate competition between these groups. And so Paul has to solve these personality problems. And the interesting thing is the way he does it. It is not the way most of us would go about solving personality conflicts. It's not the way our, our modern American culture tells us that we're to go about resolving personality conflicts, whether they're in a marriage, whether they're in, in, the, um, in the workplace, whether they're just in some other social group, or whether they're in a church. Paul begins with the doctrine of positional sanctification. That's foundational for understanding what's going on in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He begins with positional sanctifi- sanctification, reminding them that they are saints in Christ. No matter how disobedient, sinful, carnal the Corinthian congregation was, they are still saints in Christ. They are positionally sanctified. So he is reminding them in that introduction of what every believer possesses in Christ from the instant of their salvation. He's reminding them of that vast array of spiritual assets 
that they were given at the instant of salvation, and they all have one thing in common. They were all lost. They were all equally lost, and they were all equally in need of grace, and they all had to stand before the cross of Christ in the same condition, expressing their faith alone in Christ alone. So there's nothing in any of them that merits any special recognition or honor. Then he moves to the real problem. He outlines the problem there in 1 Corinthians 1, and he emphasizes the real problem is the frame of reference in the mentality of their soul. They're still operating on a human viewpoint frame of reference rather than a divine viewpoint frame of reference. And as he develops that theme, he emphasizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, that the foundation for all knowledge is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We developed our thinking on that. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to demonstrate that the unbeliever does not have the equipment necessary to understand divine viewpoint thinking. That comes from the revealed Word of God, and the only way we can know divine viewpoint thinking is first, regeneration, and second, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. He emphasizes that spiritual truth is available only to the regenerated, and then only to those regenerated believers that are in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, and that is they are not what is called carnal in the King James Version and fleshly in the New American Standard Version. And then he moves from that, as we saw last week, to emphasize that the consequences of living in according to the flesh or living according to the Holy Spirit are eternal. There are consequences that not not that they determine your eternal destiny, but that it determine our eternal our, our position in the kingdom, our role, responsibilities, and rewards. And we studied last time the judgment seat of Christ, and that as we walk by the Spirit, we produce gold, silver, and precious stones. And as we walk according to the flesh, our production is classified as, as wood, hay, and straw. And the difference is that gold, silver, and precious stones have an eternal value, a value that goes on beyond time because it is not a product of our own abilities, but that that the Holy Spirit gives us. So the theme in this section moves from simply knowledge and how we acquire knowledge in the frame of reference to emphasizing the application, that we are to be beware of judgment in both time and eternity for failure to walk by God the Holy Spirit. Now that gives us the flow of the argument, because... He has just spent time, starting in verse 9, down through verse 15, talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the question should occur to you as you read through this, where in that study of the judgment seat of Christ and the problem with the visions, why does he shift to suddenly in verse 16 say, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? What does the context have to do all of a sudden with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the fact that we are a temple of God? And he spends just two verses on that, and then he shifts back in verse 18 to dealing with wisdom versus foolishness, that is, in our vocabulary, divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. This is really a conclusion, verse 16 is really drawing a conclusion and making an application when he says, do you not know that you are a temple of God? The temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
to, in order to answer this question of why Paul goes to this subject, we're going to uh, have to take a lengthy, detailed study of the subject of the dwelling of God in human history and the significance of a temple. So this will cover the next three or four Sundays. We must, in, during this time, accurately understand the significance of this temple reference. If you run into the word temple in the New Testament, the place to define the meaning of temple is to go back into the Old Testament. You don't get it from going to Greek culture and figuring out how they use the term temple, but going back and seeing its significance in the Old Testament. Second thing we have to investigate is what is the nature of this indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Third, we must then understand exactly how this relates to the physical body. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you a preview of coming attractions on that. This, is, this has led to so much legalistic confusion. You always hear people say, well, you shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't chew or you shouldn't do this or you didn't, shouldn't do that because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and if you do anything that, that somehow harms the body, somehow is not healthy, then that is defiling or destroying uh, the temple of God. And that betrays a gross misunderstanding of this passage. Let's just think about that assertion for a minute that that if you do anything that's not healthy, that somehow that's destroying the body because the body's the temple. Is the body the temple or is the temple in the body? That's an important thing to emphasize. And then secondly, we have to ask the question, what exactly does it mean that that it doesn't mention body here, but it does in other passages that, that it's the body that's, that's the temple. Let's take their assertion that if you smoke or drink or do something like that, that somehow that has deleterious effects on the physical body, and so you're destroying the, the uh, temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's push that a little bit to its illogical conclusion. If you um, do anything deleterious to the body, that somehow that's hurting the whole, that harms the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know from modern science and modern medical science that exercising is important. So that means if you don't exercise according to whose standard, let's say the standards this week of the uh, uh, you know federal government, next week they'll change and next year they'll change again. So whose standard do we use there? If you don't uh, do aerobic exercise five times a week, then then you're hurting the body. That means that, that you're just perpetually carnal and out of fellowship if you don't exercise. If you're five or ten pounds overweight, then, my gosh, you'll always be out of fellowship. Let's not just stop with, with smoking and drinking. Let's push this all the way to its logical conclusion here. If you don't eat health food, let's all go start eating rabbit food and sprouts or go on a vegetarian diet or whatever. Let's, let's push it to a logical conclusion. If you're not eating a proper diet, what about taking in all those preservatives and other chemicals? That somehow hurts the body. So, so if you're doing that, then my gosh, you're out of fellowship and carnal just the whole time. Um, you see, it's a silly, superficial application of the verse. The emphasis is that now, in, look at the context. He just gets through dealing with judgment at the judgment seat of Christ in verses 9 through 15. 
after we die physically, in other words, when this mortal body ceases functioning, it's going to be too late to produce gold, silver, and precious stones. The emphasis on the present body being the temple of the Holy Spirit is that. It is, it's this present body, it's living in time in this corporal body that gives us the opportunity to grow and advance to spiritual maturity and to glorify God. It's not emphasizing the physical body, it's emphasizing that it's only in time when we have this physical corporal body that we can glorify God through advancing to spiritual maturity. This is not a verse that need to be applied to any healthy or unhealthy practices related to the body because the temple isn't physical. The temple is a spiritual abode that is established by the Holy Spirit in our body, but the body itself is merely the temporal presence uh, or the, tempor- the temporal uh, place where the temple is established. So don't put, let legalism get you to distort this particular verse. Next, we need to understand what it means to destroy in verse 17, so you might want to uh, circle that word. It's translated uh, destroy in the New American Standard. The Old King James, rather the New King James translates it defiles, which is a superior translation. Fifth, we must under, we must further investigate the relationship of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to the indwelling of Jesus Christ. Notice how we're building as we go through this, this, uh, investigative procedure. Sixth, we need to relate the conclusions of that study to the doctrine of the abiding of Christ and fellowship as we've studied in 1 John and in John chapter 15. When we do that, once we've done all of that, we can refine our understanding of how the positional indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit interconnect. That's positional. Then we will see how that provides the foundation for the sanctifying ministries, that's the experiential part, for the sanctifying ministries of the Holy Spirit and Christ in their function of fellowship and abiding. So we're going to see that there's an interconnection between the positional ministries of the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ and the practical experiential aspect of of fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ, and that it is that interconnection and function that provides the mechanics for the spiritual life. Now, we have to build this brick by brick and block by block, so it's going to take a little while, but when we get done, we're going to have a much greater understanding and appreciation of these foundational dynamics, and we're going to see some interesting application along the way. So let's begin with a basic exegesis of uh, of the text 1 Corinthians 3:16 and 17 1 Corinthians 3:16 begins do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you now let's put our focus here on this first phrase let's see if i can Work this right. This first phrase, do you not know? How does that show up? Pretty good. Got a new new toy to play with up here. Do you not know? This is a uh, rhetorical question. It's the second person uh, plural. It's important to note your singulars and plurals in, in this passage. 
Uh, it's a second person plural, present or perfect active indicative of the Greek verb oida, which means to see, to know, to perceive, to, and it basically indicates a knowledge in the soul that they should have at this point. It, it, it relates uh, at this time to, uh, to, to epinosis knowledge. They should know this. This should be epinosis knowledge in their soul. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Now, the negative here in the Greek is the negative ouk. You have two negatives in Greek, either ou or may. And when you ask a question with may, you expect a negative answer. And when you ask a question with ou, you expect a positive answer. So when Paul says, do you not know something using ou, he's expecting the answer to be, yes, we do know this. So he he is indicating that this should be in their frame of reference and they should understand this doctrine of being the temple of God, that they have been taught this in the past. And so by asking this rhetorical question, he is reminding them of what they have been previously taught. Then the next word is the word that right here. The that in the Greek is the particle hati, which is usually inserted to explain something. If I were going to translate this, I would do it a little differently. I would not translate the hati specifically with the that. I would say, do you not know? And then I would put a colon there. Because the, the, the next phrase, you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you, is a timeless reality for the believer in the church age. And so it's a principle that he's emphasizing. So you could translate it, do you not know, colon. You are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. The second that which you find down here was inserted by the uh, translators in order to clarify it, but that second that is not there in the original. should read, do you not know, you are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, again, he uses a second-person plural. He says, you are. And the you here is a second-person plural. Uh, it, it's really embedded within the verb, which is a second-person plural, present active indicative of a me. It's a gnomic present, which indicates the statement of a universal truth. You are, present tense. You continue to be, because this is the standard principle for every single believer in the church age. Now, the fact that this is a plural and the previous you is a plural has led some to think that because the problem that Paul is dealing with here is a problem of of problems and conflicts and difficulties inside the congregation, that the plural here is talking to the congregation as a whole, that you as a congregation are the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Now, many people would say that's the emphasis here, but then when they get to 1 Corinthians 6.13 and 2 Corinthians 6.16, that those passages are for the individual believer, but this passage refers to the corporate body of the church. And I'll tell you why that's wrong. First of all, if you do an analysis of how Paul addresses the congregation uh, with the second-person plural pronoun, you, he continuously uses that. There's only about two places in the entire epistle where he uses a first-person um, singular 
you. The rest of the time, he addresses the congregation as a whole, but he's applying it to each individual. The second reason you know that he's applying this to each individual is the context. If you go back to verse 15, just look up a bit at verse 15. We read, um, if any anyone's work, that's how it's translated in the New King James, literally it's tis, it's a uh, relative pronoun in the, uh, an indefinite relative pronoun in the Greek, and it should be translated more literally, if any individual's work is burned up. And then if you look at verse 17, you have the same structure, if any person defiles the temple of God. That's talking about individuals. So verse 16 is bracketed by verses that focus on individual application. So for those two reasons, both the way in which Paul uses the second person plural pronoun and the fact that this verse is bracketed by individual application, we must say that 1 Corinthians 3.16 is talking about each individual being a temple of God and each individual has the Holy Spirit living in them. This is not talking about a corporate application in a congregation. So this is a universal truth, and the application here is a warning related to the judgment that it was just spoken of back in verse uh, verses 9 through 15, and that judgment is individual, and it relates to how we function as temples of God the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple... Of God. Now, a temple is a place where a God dwells. And so this is going to bring in the idea from the Old Testament of the dwelling of God in the tabernacle and the temple under the, uh, during the age of Israel. Furthermore, Paul, go, Paul goes on to say, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here we have the Greek phrase, tanuma, to theu, which we've studied before, Paul's standard way of describing the Holy Spirit in a genitival construction. This is the Spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit, and that He dwells in you. And there we have the present active indicative of the verb oikeo, uh, meaning to domicile, to take up residence, to live, to make a home in, in you. In plus the dative of advantage of Ego, meaning he takes up residence in you for your advantage. And this is the basis, then, for the sanctification of the believer. Sanctification means that we are set apart for the service of God. Let's go on and look at the next verse in verse 17. Verse 17 begins with an if clause. This is a conditional clause. It is a first-class condition if, and for the sake of argument, we're going to assume that a person can destroy the temple of God. He says, if any man, and the focus here then becomes on the individual. If any man, if any individual believer destroys. Now, what is the meaning of destroys here? That is, a, I think, a bad translation. I prefer the concept of defile, which is used in the New King James. This verb is the third person singular, present active indicative, of the Greek word phthiro. 
Now, this is a tough one to spell, so I'll write it out on the overhead for you. Bathyro. P-H-T-H-E-I-R-O. Bathyro. Now, Bathyro is a key word for properly interpreting this whole concept of of the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the temple that is in the that is created in the body of the believer. If any person defiles, phthiro means to corrupt or defile. It's interesting, it's used eight times in the New Testament. The King James translates it corrupt, or a variation of the word corrupt six times. It de- translates it defile one time and destroy one time. But this is not to be understood as destruction, but as defiling, because the context is talking about temple, and it's talking about the function of a temple. In the Jewish system, the temple was defiled when anyone violated the precisely correct ritual procedures outlined by God in the Mosaic Law. So whenever you... We're engaged in any of the activities, either actively or passively, that made you unclean in the Old Testament. Remember, that's ceremonial uncleanness. Ceremonial uncleanness is not necessarily out of fellowship. It has to do with the function of ritual, not the function of your spirituality. Those were different. That's something that's not clarified enough for people. Because you could touch a dead body if you're, if you were a nurse or you were helping someone in the family and, and they died, you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean for a period of time before you could then go to the temple and offer the right sacrifices. But touching a dead body is not something that is immoral. Uh, eating shellfish. If you enjoy lobster, if you ate shellfish under the Mosaic Law, then you would be ceremonially unclean, and you would have to offer a sacrifice for that. But eating shellfish is not a moral or immoral act. It had to do with teaching spiritual principles. Shellfish are scavengers, and as scavengers, they come in contact with that which is dead. Death is the result of sin. If you touch a dead body, that's the result of sin. All these things have to do in some way with being in contact with some consequence of the sin penalty. And what God is teaching through the visual um, teaching aids of the tabernacle and the ritual system is that sin has corrupted every aspect of man's being, and if we get involved in sin, we can't come into the presence of God. So he uses the ceremonial procedures to, to teach that. Now, that's what this is referring to, is that when in the Old Testament, when the uh, precisely correct ritual procedures were violated, then a person could not come into the presence of God. If that continued in the nation Israel for an extended period of time, then instead of experiencing the blessing of God, they would begin to experience the judgment, the discipline, and then the judgment of God. That's exactly what this context is talking about, is that he's just outlined the fact that you either walk by the Spirit or you walk by the sin nature. If you choose to walk by the sin nature, then you're going to suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because you as a believer have been set apart, the doctrine of sanctification back at the beginning of of, of chapter 1, you've been positionally set apart because you in you is the temple of God created by God the Holy Spirit, 
And when you live in carnality, you're defiling that temple. And as long as you're in obedience, that becomes a source of blessing and prosperity in your life, not in financial prosperity term, but in terms of soul prosperity. And if you're disobedient, the result is divine discipline and judgment and eventual loss at the judgment seat of Christ. So that's where we are going, and that's why Paul has inserted this at this particular time. Now notice, Paul says, uh, God will destroy, uh, that if any man defiles the temple of God, God will defile him. It's a repetition of the same word, thyro, but this word has several different meanings, and Paul plays on those difference of meanings in order to bring out his point. Phthiro not only means to defile spiritually or ritually, it also indicates uh, judgment. And so when Paul repeats this word, it indicates the idea that if any man defiles the temple of God, God will judge him. Why? Because the temple of God is holy. Hagias, meaning that it is set apart for the service of God, and that is what you are. You are set apart for the service of God, and if we are living according to the flesh, then we're not serving God. If we're not serving God, we're not fulfilling the purpose for which we have been saved, and then God, therefore God is going to uh, discipline us and judge us. And that is how this fits into the entire context. Well, to understand this, we have to realize the foundation is really back in, in the previous verse, verse 16, and that is that, do you not know you're a temple of God? and the Spirit of God dwells in you. So now we have to look at the overall structure of Scripture in terms of the theme of God dwelling with man. Let us not forget in this study that it is the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, which means in the Hebrew, God with us. So this is a major theme of Scripture of God dwelling with man. And it begins... In Eden, it begins in the Garden of Eden when God is personally dwelling, I think, on the earth. Now, there's a certain amount of uh, extrapolation of Scripture in, in this particular study. But I would say that on a comparison of a number of passages, including Ezekiel 28, which describes the fall of Satan as be- and describes him as having been in Eden, the Garden of God, and also a distinction made in Genesis chapter 2 that God planted a garden east of Eden, that Eden describes the throne of God, the dwelling of God on the earth, sort of a temporal abode on the earth, and that man, Adam and the woman, are in the garden. And so God has a physical localized presence on the earth in Eden. And every day he comes and he spends time with uh, Adam and the woman. Now, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We must com- put this together with other doctrines that we've studied. And that is that no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of God, he is the one who has explained him. And there are several passages in Scripture that indicate that man has never seen God the Father. So the personage in Genesis chapter 3 that is walking in the garden with Adam and the woman is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So we have God dwelling with man there, and then that fellowship is broken because of man's sin. 
But when Adam sinned, it doesn't mean that God leaves the planet. What happens is God established a cherubim, a cherub to, with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden so that uh, Adam and the woman and their descendants could not have access to the tree of life. So you have a geography on the earth prior to the flood where Eden was still there. I mean, if we lived at that time, we could we could uh, grab our horse and get on horseback, and we could ride over to Eden, and we could see the cherub with the flaming sword. You could see the trees of Eden, and probably in the in the mists of the distance, you could see Eden itself, which was the abode of God. Now, the reason I say that is based further on a further passage that is found in Genesis chapter six, verse three. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. You can hold your place in 1 Corinthians. And as we go through the Old Testament, follow me as we, we study. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Now, this is a verse that is often mistranslated, and I think it's a difficult verse to understand simply because we have so little information and it uses some rare uses of words. In Genesis 6, 3 we read, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And the idea there is the idea of contending, how that is usually translated. But the word that you see translated strive is based on a Hebrew word that is either deen or dun, it's not sure. It's what's called the hapax legomena, and that means it's only used one time in all of Hebrew literature. So if we have a word that's only used one time, we can't go to other Hebrew passages to compare context and try to figure out just exactly what it means. The only thing we can do is go to, uh, go to other languages, other related languages, to see how uh, cognate words, that's a word that is, is uh, very similar, uh, has a basic etymological uh, connection, and to see how that word is used in those cognate languages. And in both Ugaritic, which was a very close cousin to Hebrew, spoken in northwest Canaan, and in Akkadian, which was spoken over in the kingdom of of Agad and later spoken in Babylon, in both of those languages you have a cognate, and it means to abide or to remain or to stay. Interesting word. Not only that, but the Septuagint, the Syriac version of the Old Testament, the Targums and the Vulgate follow that same reading, and they render this passage, uh, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide or live with man forever. Now that indicates that up to the flood, God is still abiding on the earth. He is still making his abode on the earth. And uh, though the reference here is to my spirit, and our first knee-jerk reaction is to always take a reference like that to be the Holy Spirit, remember there's not always a a clear delineation of uh, the Holy of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And many times a reference to my spirit can also mean just my presence. So I would suggest that the proper interpretation of this verse is that God continued a presence on the earth up until the flood, and the part of that presence was to exercise judgment. See, there's also another word that, that Dean could, could relate to, and that word indicates judgment. So it has the idea of living and judge, living. It also has the idea of judgment. And, um, 
I would suggest that God continued his presence on the earth as a judge. He is the one who judges Cain, remember, when Cain commits murder. It's God who judges him. There's no delegated judiciary during the age of the Gentiles up to the flood. It's only after the flood when in the Noahic covenant that God delegates judicial authority to man in the principle of capital punishment and judging murderers. That would suggest then that there was either no judiciary prior to the flood, but that would produce anarchy, especially if you have, as I believe, uh, somewhere around four to five billion people on the earth before the flood. But you could have the presence of God on the earth, and that in turn would mirror or imitate what happens at the end of history, which is the presence of God back on the earth during the millennium. So there's all kinds of things I could say about that, but I'm not going to get distracted. We're going to watch the progress. God with man in Eden, he stays on the earth functioning in a judiciary capacity up to the flood. After the flood to Noah, uh, to um, Abraham, there's no presence of God on the earth. A few times God appears to Abraham and he appears to Isaac and Jacob. But you don't have a permanent presence of God on the earth again until the Mosaic time, when when God personally takes up residence in the tabernacle, and then by the time Solomon builds the temple and in the temple. So you have the pre-incarnate Christ then taking up residence in the tabernacle and temple, and you have a permanent dwelling of God on the earth in the tabernacle and temple as a sign of his covenant with uh, Israel and a sign of blessing with Israel. When that presence leaves, as Ezekiel described it just before 586 B.C. and approximately 596 B.C. as a precursor to the fifth cycle of discipline there, that indicates that God is removing blessing from the nation. So once again, you get this theme that the presence of God is related to blessing, and when that presence is defiled, there's judgment. Let's go back to Noah a minute. I didn't bring that point up. You have the presence of God on the earth, which would relate to blessing, and what happens? He's going to take his presence from the earth, and because it's been defiled, because men have treated him lightly, because there's been the invasion of the sons of God, that is the uh, demon incursion and infiltration of the human race, and he leaves there, and the consequence is going to be judgment on the earth. The same thing happens at the end of the... the um, uh, first temple when God's presence is removed and then there is judgment on the uh, southern kingdom of Judah and they're taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline. Then we come to the messianic era when God once again returns to dwell among men in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he, in fact, refers to his body in John chapter 2 as a temple. Remember, he said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. And he was referring to his own body. He uses the same word for temple that we find in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the word naos, which indicates that inner sanctuary of the temple, not the other word heros, which refers to the overall temple grounds. So we have the messianic presence of God. And then something unique happens on the day of Pentecost. Rather than God dwelling in a structure or in an individual body, God now takes up residence in every single believer. 
so that every single believer becomes a temple of God in order for him to manifest himself to the rest of humanity. So the presence of God is going to then become the source of blessing in the life of every believer. We are blessed not because of what we do, remember. Let's, let's relate this to, to imputation. In the doctrine of imputation, we have seen in our study that We are blessed by God is perfect righteousness and He is justice. What righteousness condemns, justice, what, what, what righteousness rejects, justice must condemn. What righteousness accepts, justice blesses. Well, man is minus R. So man, God's righteousness rejects minus R. So God's justice puts man under condemnation. But when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone and His perfect righteousness is imputed to us and we have His perfect righteousness, then the righteousness of God looks at the perfect righteousness, the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ, and approves so God's justice blesses. We are blessed because we possess perfect righteousness. But the source of blessing then becomes the temple or indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in the body. Now, we're also indwelt by God the Father, but that's not the focus of my study right now. We're just looking at the the uh, second and third person of the Trinity in terms of the uh, function of this new temple in every believer and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. So we see how this fits within a fantastic a thematic structure of history that God is making each one of you a temple. You are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and by Jesus Christ, and that that is the place where God is going to demonstrate his blessing during the church age. Then we go from that to the final age, which is the millennial age, when Jesus Christ will return as the promised Messiah as the King of Israel, and there will be a, a new temple constructed in Israel, the uh, millennial temple, where all the nations will go to worship God, and that will then become the source of blessing for all the nations on planet earth. So this is how the, the concept of a temple and the indwelling of God and the dwelling of God among men becomes a is a major theme in the scripture. So we have to have that as our overall frame of reference before we start trying to understand just what Paul is referring to, that each of you is a temple of God. So first of all, let's look at a couple of points here under the doctrine of God dwelling with man. The Bible speaks of God as dwelling with man in numerous passages, and I'm just going to give you a few. Leviticus 26, 11, and 12 God says, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. He's talking to Israel at this point in reference to the tabernacle. Uh, My dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Then we come to John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want you to notice a connection here, because we're going to tie it back into the Old Testament, the connection between glory and the dwelling of God. 
because this goes back to the whole concept in the Old Testament tabernacle of the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is a word that came uh, that was coined by the rabbis after the close of the Old Testament, so you'll never find it anywhere in the Bible. But it referred to the dwelling of God. It's from the Hebrew word Shekinah, which means to dwell, and it referred to the dwelling of God in the in the temple in the tabernacle. And the word glory refers to the manifestation of the presence of God in the temple. So we see a correlation here in John between the glory beheld by John at the incarnation of Christ, and this reminds us, is a reminder for the reader and should make a connection between Jesus and the, and the incarnation in John 1.14 and the manifestation of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. Then we have 2 Corinthians 6.16, where Paul states, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? See, we are a temple of God. He's referring to each believer. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Incidentally, this is the passage where he's talking about an application of marriage, what uh, fellowship has light with darkness and, and the believer with the unbeliever. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. See, he is applying to the church the same principle that was articulated back in Leviticus 26.12, so that there's a development in Revelation from the Old Testament dispensation to the New Testament dispensation where each believer becomes a temple as opposed to a visible uh temple constructed with hands. Second point, the temple in the Old Testament was the place of residence for the pre-incarnate Christ. It was the place of residence for God, that is, the pre-incarnate Christ, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. The temple is where you had a visible manifestation of God. Third, third point, Jesus Christ then described his presence during the incarnation as a temple in John uh, chapter 2. Jesus described his, his body as the temple of God and that if they destroyed it, he would raise it up the third day. Of course, that confused them because they're thinking in terms of Herod's temple, not in terms of uh, what Jesus actually meant in, in terms of his body. And that is in John chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through uh, 20:22. Fourth point, the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the temple together. The tabernacle was the temporary abode. The temple was the more permanent structure. The tabernacle and temple portrayed the person and work of Christ and included the actual presence of Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity referenced there, as the glory of the Lord. So the tabernacle and temple are centered on the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ, and everything in the temple and the tabernacle was designed to teach doctrines about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fifth, the church age temple and the Holy Spirit corresponds to the Old Testament temple. There's a correspondence and development there. The church age temple in each individual believer corresponds to the Old Testament temple. As the indwelling of Christ in the Jewish temple was a guarantee of security and blessing for them under the Mosaic Covenant, so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Christ is a guarantee of security and blessing for the church-age believer. This is the key point. 
just as in the Old Testament, the, the Jews could look out, they could see the, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire at night. They, that was a guarantee to them of the covenant, that God was present with them. They were God's unique people. They were secure, and that was the basis for blessing for the nation was how they handled the temple. When they, when they disobeyed the laws, which were all related to the temple, when they disobeyed the laws, then God, they defiled the temple, and eventually God disciplined them. But when they were obedient, God would bless them. That's going to be the corresponding principle that we're going to bring over into the uh, understanding the function of the temple of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the uh, life of the believer. Now let's get into a little more detail in terms of the Old Testament uh, dwelling of God uh, among his people. And uh, this will be, we'll just call this the doctrine of the Shekinah dwelling of God. The doctrine of the Shekinah dwelling of God. We're not going to get very far into this. This is going to be a a uh, lengthy study, so we'll just take an introduction to the doctrine under six points. We should get have time to cover that before we uh, break up this morning. Okay, first point. The commonly used term is the term Shekinah glory. Now let me uh, spell this on the overhead for you. For those of you who are spelling challenged, Shekinah glory. This is, Shekinah is from the Hebrew verb Shakan, which means to dwell. The word glory is from the Hebrew word kavod, K-A-B-O-D-H. It's almost like a very, very soft T-H, kavod. And that that means something, refers to something that is weighty, something of extreme significance or importance, or something that is a uh, heavy. Remember back in the 70s there was a the idiom oh, man that's really heavy. Well that's that's biblical. I mean that's the concept here whether you're expressing in that idiom was something that was uh, overwhelming, something that was really important. And that's the idea in kavod is that God is his glory, his weighty presence, his significance, it's it's the highest most important, most significant thing in the universe. So you have these two words, Shekinah and glory, which are then uh, combined to indicate this presence of God in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests designated the tent in the Holy of Holies, the centermost part of the... Let me see if I can get it. The centermost part of the of the tabernacle to be the tent of meeting. They called that the tent of meeting from the Hebrew word mishkan. Listen to those consonants. Shekinah, mishkan. See, when you add that M in the front, it changes the, uh, the, the uh, grammatical function of the word, and it changed it from the verb dwelling to a noun. Shekan, sh K and N. The SH is, is one uh, consonant in Hebrew. And that was the innermost part of the uh, 
holy of holies where the ark of the covenant dwelt. So this is this is the um, holy of holies in the tabernacle. You had a tent. Let me see. I think I have a slide here. There we go. This would be the innermost the tent of meeting here. Uh, well. Right here, the tent of meeting. And this is a place where Moses and God would meet together and God would reveal his will and his policy uh, to Moses. So the priest called the Holy of Holies the tent of meeting, related to the same noun, Shachan, for the Shekinah glory. Later the term came to be used of God's presence or his dwelling on the earth, and it's also related to the phrase used in the Old Testament, the house of God. So all these terms together emphasize the, the dwelling of God among his people for the purpose of blessing. Second point, all of that relates to Shachan. The second point is, has to do with the understanding of the word glory. Glory was the common biblical word that's used to refer to the presence of God in the Old Testament. Shekinah was, remember, a post-biblical word that was developed by the rabbis in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The common word used in the Old Testament is the word glory, and that was to, used to describe the uh, presence of God, the theophonic presence of God in the Old Testament. We find this in passages such as Exodus 16, verse 10. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord, that is the chavod of the Lord, appeared in the cloud. So the cloud is not the glory of the Lord and neither is the shining or shimmering presence there. That's the result of the presence of God. That is the effect of the presence of God. Leviticus 9.23 states, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And then in Numbers 14.10, But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So the term glory of the Lord is designed to express the presence of God in the, the temple or tabernacle. Third point, God's glory was associated with the pillar of cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night. There are um, four times in which that glory of the Lord is manifested in the Old Testament. First of all, during the Exodus, when the uh, pillar of cloud led the uh, Jews out of Egypt. Second, it appears on Mount Sinai. Third, God's glory appeared at the dedication of the tabernacle where it then rested between the cherubim on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And then fourth, the glory of the Lord entered into Solomon's temple. So there are four times when the glory of God appears in the Old Testament. Fourth, the Shekinah glory emphasizes the unique presence of God among his people. It emphasizes the unique presence. Nobody else had the presence of God visibly manifested on the earth in this nation. It's a visible presence designed to confirm his blessing and to provide guidance for his people. And it's fascinating because the infinite, eternal, omnipresent God is going to be able to spatially limit 
and temporally limit his presence so that he can provide guidance to his people. It's a foreshadowing of the spatial and temporal limitation of God in the incarnation. Fifth, the Shekinah is not the shining or the glowing in the cloud, but is the cause of that shining or glowing. And then six, the Shekinah represents the positional place of blessing the Jew had under the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant. Now, that's important to understand. It represents his positional place of blessing. But how well they kept the commandments of the Old Testament related to the temple and worship determines the experiential blessing. Now, we have to draw that distinction And we'll see how that impacts the spiritual life today when we come back and look at 1 John chapter 3 in the second hour. So, like I said in the introduction, we're going to be tying these two things together for the next two or three weeks and developing a complete new range of insights in terms of the dwelling of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and abiding in Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity to study your word, to recognize the fact that you have given us a fantastic spiritual life and you have made a tremendous provision for it to the extent that that you have created a temple inside each one of us. And not only are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but by Jesus Christ, who is manifesting his presence in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that you would take this opportunity for them to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God in his grace provided a perfect solution. He sent his Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to take up residence on the earth, to live as a man, to qualify himself in his perfection to go to the cross where he died as a spiritual substitute for us so that we could have salvation simply by accepting that substitute, believing that he died on the cross for our sins. Right now, right where you sit, you can make that decision. You can determine your eternal destiny. You can have certainty that you will go to heaven. All you have to do is believe Christ died for your sins. Father, we pray again that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. In Christ's name, amen.